0: Hi, all. Welcome to another episode of Doing Mr. Rogers, where your hosts, Megan and I, each watch an episode of Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood, and then get to de- get together to discuss the thought-provoking insights and very relevant lessons we learned from it, even now as adults. This week, though, we would like to change things up a little, to show our own support for the Black community, and from our belief in having more conversations around Black and white right relations and racism in America, we're going to talk about a single episode of Mr. Rogers. This episode is well known to many, as one in which Mr. Rogers shows his own support for the Black community. In 1969, when this episode was aired, segregation was no longer the law of the land in America, but Black citizens were still in no way embraced as equal participants in public life. This status was reflected at many community pools across the country, with rights preventing Blacks from sharing the water with them. It was against this practice that Mr. Rogers performed a simple but meaningful act in his episode, number 1065, of Mr. Rogers Neighborhood, which aired on May 9th, 1969, where Mr. Rogers invites Officer Clemens, a black police officer on the show, to join him and cool his feet in a small plastic wading pool, even sharing a towel to dry both of their feet, all done on the air. It is said when Clemens sat down and placed his feet in the water right next to Mr. Rogers, the two men broke a well-known color barrier. Officer Clemens became a recurring character on the show after that, and he and Mr. Rogers became friends. While they remained friends until death, it wasn't just Mr. Rogers' well-known acceptance and vulnerability that sustained the relationship, but after being asked by Mr. Rogers to keep his sexual orientation hidden on the show, it was clearly also Officer Clemens' own acceptance and vulnerability that sustained their friendship as well. In 1993, Officer Clemens made a last appearance on the show. During that appearance, he and Mr. Rogers recreated the pool scene. But this time, Officer Clemens didn't just use Mr. Rogers' towel. Mr. Rogers took a towel and dried Officer Clemens' feet himself. Today, we want to talk more about that episode and what it meant then and what it means now in today's America. Officer Clemens, or Francois Clemens, as his real name was, also wrote a memoir about his life, including his time on Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. Megan is going to give us a little bit of insight into that show, so I or into that, uh, excuse me, that memoir now, and so I'll hand it over to her.
1: Thanks, Kim. I'm really excited to talk about Francois Clemens because he was a huge role in Mister Rogers' Neighborhood. Um, you know, when that episode aired and when he became a regular on the show, he became the first black person to have a recurring role on a children's show. So it really was, he, he really broke barriers himself at the time. And what's interesting too, is that he played the role of a police officer and obviously in the sixties, black people and, and cops were having problems. And by that, I mean, cops were killing black people. And unfortunately that's happening right now too. Um, So when Mr. Rogers talked to him about wanting to be on the show, Francois had reservations about being a police officer, you know, obviously he he had his own issues with the police. He knew that the black community had his own issues with the police. Um, but he he and Mr. Rogers, he kind of kept an open mind and he and Mr. Rogers talked about it a lot. And Mr. Rogers said, listen, what you can do as coming on the show as a black police officer is open up children's minds to the possibilities of black men being in power in this country. And that kind of shifted his idea about it. And he said, you know, okay, I'm, I'll do this. Um, I can see how I can influence children. And I think that was incredibly brave and had to be a really hard Decision. I mean, police were putting, you know, fire hydrants of water on black people. Um, You know, we still know the difficult relationship between black and brown people and police and the police brutality that's been going on, especially with everything with um, what happened with the murder of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and and countless too many others um, by police. So it was a total radical act of love on Francois Clemens' part to take on that role, I think. Um, So I just really admire him for that, just to start off the bat. And I also read somewhere, here's a a funny side note, that he said, okay, Fred, I'll take the role as a cop if you don't let it get in the way of my singing career. And he was like half joking but serious, too, because a lot of people don't (laughs) know he was a classical singer. And, um, it turns out like it turned Fred apparently teased him about that for the rest of his life is saying, "I hope I'm not getting in front of your singing career." but um but I really think you know, the act of him getting on the show and taking the role as a police officer was such a brave and radical act. Um, a selfish act to try to enact change in children so children can see a Black man in a different position. And so I really just respect him for that. Um,
0: and, yeah, yeah, if I can add, I was, I was reading a little bit about it also. Um, <clears throat> well, I haven't read the memoirs you have, uh, although I plan to. Um, yeah, he, he talked a little bit about sort of, yeah, how he continued throughout playing that role to sort of struggle with the conflicting feelings inside of himself by playing it, right? Um, and as, as you're saying, because I think maybe there was probably some feeling of um, betrayal or just, just maybe disgust even. Um, but to your point, like, it's, it, it's a powerful thing what he did, which was to shoulder that, to take those feelings on um, in order to, you know, create hopefully something good in the world, um, and that, yeah, I think I'm with you. I think that's a big deal. That's so difficult to do. That's such a hard thing to stomach. And I'm sure you'll talk about it a little bit more. You know, he sort of he, he made other sacrifices to be on that show and to be a black representative in the way that he was with power on that show. Um, that I just it's really really quite amazing. Very very um, so something something to be inspired by. Oh, sorry. Go ahead.
1: Yeah, and I'm glad you said that, because I didn't want it to seem, I'm not making it seem like, oh, he decided he would do that, and then everything was great. I mean, this is something that he struggled, rightfully so, with for a Mm -hmm. long time during the show, and um, that obviously can be understood through what you see what happened throughout history since the sixties and is going on now. So, um, yeah, he's just, he's a very interesting character in person. Um, I, he just released his memoir, um, in March, I believe or may. So literally of this year in 2020. Um, and I just started listening to it while, while I work, um, on audible, um, I really recommend everyone go buy a copy at your local independent bookstore or online at IndieBound, or if you listen to them on Audible. For me right now, because I'm working a lot, that's really the only way I can read right now. Um, it's called Officer Clemens, A Memoir by Francois Clemens. I don't want to give it all away because this is really a fascinating book, um, but I thought I could just kind of talk a little bit about his his life before Mr. Rogers, because to get to where he where he got being an icon on a children's program that is probably the most popular children's program in the world, um, he went through a lot. Him and his family went through a tremendous amount, not just discrimination, which you can't even just say just discrimination, racism and discrimination in this country is an incredible thing to survive and thrive from, but um, trauma within his own family, too. So just it, the book starts with him talking about his great-grandparents growing up being enslaved people um, on a cotton farm. They talk about all the hardships they, they went over and is including a horrible thing that happened with his enslaved great-grandfather being Murdered by the property master, the master, as he, you call the, the big white guy who owned everything and everyone on the cotton farms. Um, and it was because the master was raping his great grandmother. And after years of this happening, his great grandfather just couldn't take it anymore and was going to confront him. And he pulled out a gun and shot him three times and he died in his great grandmother's arms, um, the master—I uh, don't even want to call him that—but I, I don't think he gave him that's a right. name. the a-hole slave owner, the plantation um, owner. Plantation I like to say a owner. slave owner.
0: Plantation yes. owner. Well,
1: that, that's whitewashing
0: it a little bit, but yeah, that it is. is no, yeah. it's more because it's awful. I don't, and yeah. I didn't want to give him that power, but maybe that's not right either. Yeah, I
1: don't. I guess I don't know. I'm going to have to look up what we call history um but he he said don't even bury him let him die there and so they had to leave his body there and then until the the night then give him a burial and um his family came up and they wanted to move him back to where he was from which was if this, this was in Alabama I think it was another state over um but his great grandmother was just in too grief and said I don't want to leave him so they actually buried him on the property um and then Not too long after that, his family, and this is when he was a small boy, had to leave this plantation, um, because there was tons of floods coming in at the time and the plantation was getting, was, I mean, it was just, the houses were getting ruined, they had to move north, um, and they were also moving north to try to create a new life for themselves and escape the blatant racism of the south, um, so he talks about going on this journey and he was really close with his grandfather. now this is not his great grandfather who was shot. This is his grandfather. Um, they would spend a lot of time together and the, his grandfather was really creative and would talk, bring him to the sugar cane fields and talk about, can you hear the stories the sugar cane are telling us? And he was just like really playful and um, gave him a ton of attention and When they had to leave and flee the floods and racism, um, his grandfather went missing. They don't know what happened. Um, They found his cane, I think, by a river or some kind of body of water, and they had to move on, and it traumatized him. He says he was about five years old, I think, at the time, and the person that he was closest to in life, he was very quiet with other people, but he felt like he could be himself around his grandfather Um, just went missing, which, which probably meant, you know, he was lost to the floods. So he, and then he's five years old at this time. I mean, this is extreme trauma going on in his life that when you're that young, that trauma absorbs into you. You don't forget that kind of stuff. It affects you. So... Then, you know, I'll I'll kind of skip forward a little bit because I don't want to tell the whole story because the book really should be written or read by everyone. It's really wonderful um, talking about his life in the South and then now his life in the North. So they fled to the North um, and he started talking about, oh, well, I, you know, experienced overt racism in the South, but now it's like covert racism of the North, North of the Mason-Dixon line like his high school counselors telling him to learn a trade and laughing at him when he said he wanted to go to college and laughing even harder when he said he wanted to go to college for singing, Um, you know, and just talking about segregation too and and how he was affected by that. He also sadly had an abusive father and eventually uh, an abusive stepfather It got so bad that in his senior year of high school, he, um, moved in with another family and he talks about that accepting and loving family helped shape who he was becoming and starting to accept who he was becoming because his own family didn't want him singing anything other than church songs that they thought that was, you know, anti-religious or something. Um, so he was allowed to kind of like explore secular music a little bit. He was allowed to explore himself a little bit. He had a lot more freedom. He also talks about finally having the ability to breathe. So after being, you know, around abusive father and stepfather his whole life, getting out of the site of abuse in his face, he finally was able to just put down his defenses and be who he, who he is, because otherwise he was just in survival mode most of his life. So he talks, he gives a lot of credit to that family and helps shaping who he becomes and help getting him into college, um, where he went to Oberlin College. Um, he got in because he had excellent grades. He was a great student, um, like a straight A student, um, but he also got in because of his beautiful singing voice. And he was becoming a classically trained and opera singer. Um, And he learned a lot at college, like a lot of people do, but especially for him, you know, growing up in such a small community in the South and coming to the North, which was in Ohio, I believe, um, and experienced that racism and and really being under the firm hand of his abusive father, um, his world wasn't allowed to be that big. And then he goes to college and he meets all these people and befriends multiple people and Gets the chance. He's in the choir. He gets the chance to go to the Soviet Union, which is. I mean, this is one oh. of those cultural things that the government did. It's like, okay, well, let let's start, let's start showing you know the cultural side of democracy and see if they'll go for that. But he talks about getting on a plane for the first time, and he's like, I didn't even try to hide how excited I was, and he's. <laughs> Uh, You know, a young man in college who's most people, I think, would like try to pretend like they know what's going on. I would be like, oh, I've done this all the time. Um, But Mm -hmm. he was just totally thrilled. He took total advantage of it and explored as much as he could. And it's interesting because he talks about how he felt more accepted in Russia, the Soviet Union at the time, um, about how he felt more accepted there as a black man than in the USA. And he said, you know, people still treated me weird like they fawned over me and asked to touch my hair and but th- but they also asked if he was discriminated against in the usa so that really you know mm-hmm. we often think about like the soviet union is this. T- we're trained to think about it that and communism is a terrible place but he said the people were so incredibly kind and concerned that he was getting discriminated against even though in their own way they were treating him differently because they are not used to seeing black people, frankly, and not definitely not seeing black people from the USA. Um, But he said it just helped open his eyes even further to just how racist the USA was. Um, And then when he got back, it was hard for him to kind of adjust. But it just then, you know, that was just on his radar a little bit more about really the position of him as a black man in the US and what that meant. And then in college, this is also where he started it, to investigate and embrace his homosexuality, which was something that was he had to hide. Um, if he showed anything that what quote unquote his father or stepfather considered was gay, that would he would be like beaten. At one point, his father, with his mother's permission, brought him to a prostitute to try to get him to be with a woman, so he would get straight. This was when he was in high school or college. So I cannot imagine that. I mean, this is just how dysfunctional his family was. Um, and what an attack on your sexuality, like the fact that he even started to embrace and it. And your identity. Yes, and I, I mean, he was just constantly attacked, not, not just from you know, a racist USA, but from his own family. Um so, you know, I haven't finished the book, the book. I'm about halfway through. Um the rest of the book, um I can't wait to finish. Um he I know it goes on to talk about his chance encounter with Mr. Rogers, which I know by reading ahead a little bit was um when he was singing at a church and he was asked to be brought on the show. Um I also know that they formed, like you mentioned, a lifelong tight friendship. Um, And he talked a little bit about, I wanted to share a quote about his time on that episode where they shared the pool experience. Um, I found an interview of him talking with WBRU, which is Boston Public Radio, about that episode. And um, I just wanted to give a little space to to say it in his own words of what that episode meant to him. He said, referring to that pool scene with Mr. Rogers, I thought that moment was kind of light. I was expecting something like maybe calling Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. up and or the president or saying, you know, this is immoral and some kind of curse on these people. And he didn't do that at all, talking about Mr. Rogers. He said, come, come sit with me. And he said, you can share my towel. He says, he goes on to say, my God, those were powerful words. It was transformative to sit there with him, thinking to myself, oh, something wonderful is happening here. This is not what it looks like. It's much bigger. And then he said, I'll never forget one guy said to me, when that program came on, we were actually discussing the fact that black people were inferior. And Mr. Rogers cut right through it. And he said, essentially, that scene ended the argument. And Mm -hmm. Mr. Clemens goes on to say just, you know, he didn't, he expected to address race in a different way on the show. And he kind of thought it was light that they were just sharing the pool. But then he started realizing throughout his life and people would tell him just how meaningful that time was. So a lot of people give credit to Mr. Rogers for that scene, which they should. But I think we need to give huge credit to Mr. Clemens, too, for one, playing the role of police officer, and two, getting in the pool with him and sharing the towel and taking that kind of brave act, which must have been scary. I mean, there are death threats against people who tried to break those barriers.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. So I um
1: I would be a little remiss not to mention that there was tension at times. You brought it up a little bit earlier, Kim. Um, between him and Mr. Rogers when it came to his own sexual orientation. Um, Mr. Rogers told him, and this is a quote from Mr. Rogers from Clemens' mouth, um, I want you to know, Frank, that if you're gay, it doesn't matter to me at all. Whatever you say and do is fine with me, but if you're going to be on the show as an important member of the neighborhood, you can't be out as gay. I wish you were different, but you can't have it both ways. Not now anyway. Talent can give you so much in this life, but that sexuality thing can take it all away. Clemens said that Mr. Rogers, even at one point, suggested that he should marry a woman, which he did, and then since divorced. um, And how hurtful that kind of advice and conversations were. Yes, 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 it was a sign of the times, everyone wants to say, but, you know... That was they had a deeply personal friendship, and that Mr. Rogers was willing to push the boundaries on race, but was not willing to push the boundaries on sexuality at the time, and I'm I'm sure that was very hurtful to to Francois, and he talks about it a bit in his book and in interviews he's done. Um, but even through that, and this is a true sign, like you said, the, of of love, he says he forgives Mr. Rogers for that hurtful advice. That's a, a just another example of a beautiful, courageous, and compassionate act, which we often associate with Mister Rogers, but it should definitely be associated with Francois Clemens too.
0: Yeah, yeah, it's interesting, um, you know, hearing you and reading a little bit myself thus far um, is yeah is 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 you know one of the things I've always really liked about. Uh, Mr. Rogers was sort of his different approach to things. You know, we've used words like vulnerable, um, humble, um, just just sort of this slow, calm, sort of listen first, learn, and then ask questions and using that as sort of a form and then just leading by example as sort of his form to teach or to create change or to whatever. Um, and really, you know that that's it's it's an interesting one. I think you and I have talked about this before. It's an interesting um, approach, right? And sometimes, um, you know, you you know, there's psychology and different things and different philosophies of of sort of when you when you behave and you create sort of an open, honest, vulnerable state to someone else, you trigger that in them. Versus when you approach someone angry or whatever, you tend to trigger that in them also. Um, and I'm certainly not saying one way is right, one way it's, uh, is wrong. I think there's places for both. Um, and I don't think real change happens without both. Um, however, um, he seemed to have this other approach, which which I personally find difficult. Um, and it, it's just, it's always amazed me. And in, in Officer, Officer Clemens, Francois, Mr. Clemens, I don't know, whatever we want to call him here, but he, he really had that same thing. You know, he, he mentioned something about when he met Mr. Rogers in church, sort of he, he said something like sparks ignited or something along those lines is the words he used. And, and I feel like it's because they kind of were kindred spirits in that. It, it's uh, Francois Clemens seemed to really have a power about him, this subtle power. Um, and, you know, like we were talking about his, his decision to not only be black, he's a black police officer on the television show, but also to hide his, um, sexual orientation. And he was even asked to not go to gay clubs, to not have an open openly homosexual relationship. Um, and he did that and he did that for the show. He did that for, other people. He did that because of the role he felt he was playing in change in the world. And he did that quietly and he did that powerfully. Um, and for me, that's some of the most moving, powerful examples of just examples, um, out there. And, and, and I think it's, I think it's really fantastic in those two men together who clearly Mr. Rogers is not perfect. Um, he had his problems as well. Um, and limitations, um, which we shouldn't all be surprised at because we all do, um, you know they, they managed to love each other anyway. And some of the things that, that Mr. Clemens talks about Mr. Rogers, you know, he talks about him as a surrogate father and really even at the even through the end, um, you know his life changing by the message of love and love and acceptance as who you are that Mr. Rogers gave and created and put out in the world. Um, And that that was kind of one of the first times he really experienced it um, like that, um, and how it changed him and how moving that was. Um, And and I think that message is across all um, colors, religions, um, sexual orientations, um, disabilities, all that kind of stuff. Um, And it's just, I don't know, it's it's nice to know men men like that are in this world. it's i don't know brings brings a good feeling at a time when when we know there's plenty of of bad people also so so Megan um i think you might be on mute
1: sorry that's me i had a open a can of uh, soda for some caffeine and I didn't want it to make a noise, but uh, no thanks for letting me know, Kim, because I sure was talking to no one. Um, I was just saying, I think they are kindred spirits and they show a lot of the same approach and how they deal with things. Um, I think it's terrible that he had to be repressed like that on the show that kind of said not to do that. Um, The fact that he did and went forward and still wanted to teach kids and be there for the children and for the message is pretty amazing. Um, And how he forgave Mr. Rogers for that. And how later on, I I read some interviews about how the lifelong friendship with Mr. Rogers and what he learned about forgiveness, um, how that allowed him to eventually forgive his mother and parents and stepfather, I believe, who, I think after their death, um, who deeply hurt him. And I personally, the subject of forgiveness for me is I'm I'm on a bunch of different sides of the fence. I think it can be really powerful. And I think we see that with Mr. Clemens and Mr. Rogers right here. Um, and I think it'd be really powerful in a lot of people's lives. I also think that it's a tool that's been used as a weapon sometimes to, to say everyone must forgive and must do this. And a lot of times it's a religious weapon. Um, I personally don't believe you have to forgive everyone all the time. I don't believe that's healthy for some people to forgive. Um, For me, there's some things that personally in my life are unforgivable and I'm okay with that. And I don't feel like I'm holding on to anger because of that. I just don't want to forgive an act. Um, But Mr. Rogers also helps me see the, the really positive side of forgiveness too. So I, I love how he leads by example. I learned something from him a lot of episodes. I also just, my own personal belief is forgiveness doesn't, have to happen if you don't want it to, or you don't feel like you need it to just because you don't forgive doesn't mean you're full of anger and ruining yourself, which is the message we hear a lot. So I don't know why I just talked about that, but I think I talked about that because I think how beautiful forgiveness has been in this, in this example, but I guess I just wanted to weigh in on the other side because I feel like a lot of times people, especially people, victims of abuse feel pressured to forgive And, um, I just wanted to say there's some of us out there that feel and are perfectly fine. And this is something I've talked with my therapist about. It can be perfectly psychologically healthy to choose not to forgive too.
0: Yeah, I think that makes sense. And I think me personally, and I think that's a, I actually think that's a very personal thing for each of us because I think. We all, think of, we all think of forgiveness a little bit differently, right? Like, well, we think of every word and every concept and every, everything in our own unique ways. Um, so to say to one another that that's not okay for you or you should do it, excuse me, I don't agree with that either. Um, so like you're saying, I think it's a personal choice for everyone. Um, where I know for me, where I struggle is... I, I am a person who wants to forgive and and actually I find it pretty easy these days. Um, you know, seven years ago, probably I went through one of the worst betrayals of my life and, and pain and I found, I forgave immediately and I found one, I just didn't have the space for anymore. I was so broken. I didn't, I literally didn't have the space for any more um icky feelings for lack of a better way to put it. Um so that was me personally. Um but what but what in and, and so for me to heal, I just I couldn't hold on to it. I couldn't I couldn't let it have space. I needed all my space to be filled with other stuff because I literally was just gutted. So like but that's me. But then also where I struggle is sort of that There's some good in that, right? Because you let it go and it's no longer part of you. However, there's some danger in that um, because I don't think it's healthy to forget. Um, I think it's still healthy to set that boundary, to remain and to continue regularly to say that wasn't okay. This isn't okay. It's different when the other person atones for it or they've changed or something along those lines. Like you don't have to keep putting it in their face, but like, you know, especially marriage is a great example of that um, you know, things that happen in marriage, but, um, but still it's important, even though that pain is, is awful and you want to let it go. I think that's right from a forgiveness standpoint for me, but it's not right from, from a memory standpoint or a, um, that's what I'm looking for, like vigilance, right? So you, you, it's, you don't, you don't go, you don't let it happen again, or you don't forget about it, or you don't let it, lay dormant for too long when it shouldn't be laying dormant it needs to continue to come out and be discussed or talked about um, I think is what I'm getting at but that's I find it difficult to do to do both sometimes um, and and that's my personal goal is to still create my boundaries still talk about it um, still bring it up still to create that those uncomfortable times and spaces in my life around it while having already forgiven it but I think does that make does that make sense the way I was talking?
1: It sure. does. I mean, like you said, it's personal for everyone. But I understand. I mean, if something is hurting you, you have to figure out how to make it not hurt, and that may include forgiveness. Mm. Uh, but it may include many other things too, and just being checking in on yourself and and being true to yourself and ignoring what society is telling you, what your religion, what your family, what whatever book you're trying to read about personal growth is telling you really, which is oh, God, I have too many of those. Oh my God. Um, I
0: can't. Yes. Too it much. needs to be. Yeah. anyway. Go on. Yeah. But
1: I mean, and, and, you know, looking at Mr. Rogers and Mr. Clements is a great example of how forgiveness has worked for them and has worked for a lot of things, but it's not the only way there. It's a beautiful example, but it's not the only way to
0: healing. And, um, and and I think for me it's like at the very least, and again, it is personal for each one of us and there's a different way. I, I do believe at the very least it's a converse it's it's a conversation that continues needs to be had even after it's been forgiven. You know what I mean? It's a conversation that I hope those two continue to have, to continue to talk about, didn't shy away from, didn't yeah. brush under the rug now, that it's you know, quote unquote resolved. That's not healthy, that that's all that's that's not healthy. That's not good. That's waiting for it to repeat itself. That's not, that's, I don't know exactly how to articulate why that's so not good, but I believe to my core that it is. Um, and, and, you know, regardless of, of where we ever net out in this country or in this world, all of our, um, all of our God, sorry, I'm not coming up with my words today. <laughs> all of our notions, all of our racist notions, all of our sexu- sexist notions, all of our notions around sexual orientation and religion and everything, regardless of where we get, which, you know, I'm not even going to speculate on on my what I think we're capable of, but... Um, you know, regardless whatever state it is, it's something we always need to be talking about. It's, it's not just because it was uncomfortable just because it's still uncomfortable to talk about. We need to keep talking about it, even when it quote unquote feels okay in the moment. So what, like, and that's where, that's where I think for me, there's forgiveness. Um, and then there's, uh, not forgetting.
1: Yeah. And it's interesting bringing it back to, um, Oh, bring it back to race in this country because I think a lot of people write it off, write off the history of racism and slavery, and I've heard people say, "Can't they
0: just get over it? Like forgive and forget, and move on." Um, and that's where it's like, fine, maybe they're big enough to forgive and good for them and kudos. Like, and then no judgment if no one does. Like, that's I get it. One way or the other, but forget is not. I don't. I don't like that saying. And Forgive you maybe, but you not forget. You That's can't right.
1: forget racism. You up. shouldn't. It's alive and well in our culture right now. Well, I absolutely, mean, without we, a doubt. And and, and
0: it, it truly. I mean, I I hope or slavery, but slavery too. I don't think we should forget. I, why can't we talk about Why is why yeah? Why would we forget something like that? For the love of God, we should never forget something like that. Yes, because it just turns
1: into, it rolls into different things. If we don't actually deal with why that happened in the first place, it turns into institutional racism or redlining mm-hmm. or other ways to keep black and brown people down. And, and that is what this country has done, is kind of we try to deal with it, and then a lot of white people, it's white, I will say this, it's a lot of white people's responsibility. We created this, we must dismantle it. Um, we, a lot of white people sweep it under the rug and hopefully now through all these demonstrations in the U S and around the world, um, hopefully we're waking up. Hopefully we're doing some work to understand this all. Hopefully we're doing some work to, to identify maybe bias or racism, racist, racism in our families, in ourselves, in our friends, in our neighborhoods, um, I, you know, for decades we've labeled racism as a black and brown person problem because we just don't want to do the work and we don't want to deal with it. And we have the privilege of not dealing with it because we have white skin and we live it in, I know maybe this won't be a popular opinion, but I'm going to say it because I believe it. We live in a culture of white supremacy since the beginning of this country. Now, we did try to make everyone equal uh, according to a declaration of independence. But even while that was written by Jefferson, who wrote it, he had a slave by his side while he wrote it.
0: There for and and black people are only three quarters of a people. Well, in the constitution, which makes you want to throw up.
1: So let's we let's stop acting like we're this free and equal society. Let's stop telling our children to be colorblind because guess what? color and race does matter how you're treated in this country. And we need to discuss it with open eyes and we need to deal with it ourselves. And I speak as as a white person saying that I really believe it's on the shoulders of white people to do a lot of the work because we created this. Um, I think one one easy way if you're interested in doing that is, is reading a little bit about The Black Experience through Officer Clemens' memoir, which just came out and is truly wonderful. And if if you're listening to this podcast, you probably give a darn about Mr. Rogers. So I think you might be interested in it. Um, There's also this great book that I recently read and am rereading called White Fragility, which I know that phrase just makes people a little uncomfortable. It can, but, and there's some things in the book that made me uncomfortable because I acknowledge some things about me and my growing up and my own my own family, but it really helped me. Um, But I hope we're all, everyone is starting to put racism at the forefront of our brains so we can solve this once and for all. I mean, it's going to take time, but we got to start at least talking about it. And that is one reason why we want to do this podcast is because shame on me for when I talked, when I talked about this episode of when they shared a pool, I said, Hey, great for Mr. Rogers. He he shared this pool and cleaned Officer Clemens' feet and that was amazing. And I didn't even acknowledge how brave and amazing it was of Officer Clemens to do that and for Francois Clemens to become an be an officer on the show. So it's all about the narrative. It's all about how we look at things and it's all about the stories we tell and we need to see them from different points of view. And I'm I'm so glad we took some time today to talk about Francois Clemens, who I think is an incredible individual. His book is wonderful. He's he um, if you're gonna get the audiobook, he reads it himself and he's fabulously entertaining. Fantastic. So, um highly <laughs> really recommend it.
0: Well, cool. Well, thank you, Megan. And and I think that's right. I know I'm 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 just a believer in that what we're talking about is having these conversations is bringing it up, talking about it, talking about all the difficult things in our lives. Um, and, and, and racism is a difficult one. That's, but that, that it's let yourselves be uncomfortable. And like you said, read book, learn, um, you know, talk to the people around you about it. Um, it's, and don't be afraid to be uncomfortable. That's okay. Um, and, um, And yeah, and thanks for saying that and thanks everybody for joining us um, on what we do absolutely believe is a very important episode and Megan thank you very much for all your heartfelt input and passion Um, and thank you Mr. Rogers and thank you Mr. Clemens, for showing us um, how a united black and white America might look. Um, I know I personally have my own weaknesses and flaws, um, many in fact, And one of them is not having a deep understanding of my fellow men and women of color and sexual orientation, but I am trying to learn. So with that in mind, for all of you out there with different colored skin, different hair textures, different facial features, different cultures, different religions, different disabilities, different towns and different languages, i leave you with our favorite quote from Mr. Rogers himself. You made this day a special day by just your being you. There's no person in the whole world like you. And I like you just the way you are. Thanks, everybody.